bless us. Bless, bless. My Lord. Yeah. Father, we bless your name today and we thank you for how good you've been to us and how consistently gracious you've been to us, Lord. We thank you for another opportunity to come before your throne, before your people. We now ask you for the power to impart information, wisdom, enlightenment, encouragement to them. Lord, we thank you for what you brought us through. Grateful for what you brought us to today, Lord. We thank you for everyone who sits here able to hear me, Lord. But even though they can hear me, Lord, I'm asking you to drown out my voice and let it be your voice that they hear in their lives, Lord. We are grateful for a place to come to, Lord. We are grateful for people of like mind who come here with us. We are grateful that we have the ability, Lord, to understand what's being said, and we're even more grateful that you've given us the intelligence to apply these things to our lives, Lord. And now as we move forward, we know we can't do it in our own power. We know we can't do it in our own strength. Lord, we need you. We need you in an abundant way. We are powerless to make the effective changes we need in our lives without you. Bless us as we move forward. Bless those who are in this place and bless those who are hearing us and visiting us from another space, Lord. We, we thank you. Lord, you blessed us in so many ways, but none more significantly than by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, we're grateful for Jesus. We're thankful for him and his life-saving future-giving, everlasting, loving work. We thank you for him, and we lift this prayer in his precious holy name. Amen. Oh, gratefulness. Gratefulness. I've learned in my few years here in this life that of all the things you need to have in abundance in your life, Gratefulness is one of them. You ought to be grateful for what God has done for you. You ought to be grateful for the folk he's given to you. In fact, sometimes you ought to be grateful for the folk who's not with you anymore. Yeah, that he's moved them away from your life. In some respects, they've been hindrances. Not always, but we've been dependent on some people who didn't, who couldn't get us where we needed to go. So I'm grateful for everything that God has done. You never could have told on September 1st, 2000, I mean, 1996, that I would be grateful in any way that our mama died. You never could have told me that. I would have argued you with every breath I had in my life that you were wrong. But at this point, these many years later, I can even say I'm mature enough to appreciate the fact that mama hadn't been here all these times because I leaned on mama in a lot of ways that I've had to learn how to lean on the Lord for moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean I'm glad she's gone, but you can see appreciation in anything if you're mature enough to look at it that way. And so I know I wouldn't have been able to help some members and some people in spaces without that experience being a part of my life. And so for that, I'm mature enough today to say I'm grateful, Lord, that you put me in that space. And he knew what he was doing in preparing for that. He knew the work he had for me to do. He gave me a perspective that I can assure you couldn't have come from any other perspective. There was no book I could read that was going to tell me, do this. It was just a lived experience that has gotten me here. And so for that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. We started a part one of a series. Well, we started a sermon series this month 
entitled Entrusted. Entrusted. We're talking about the various relationships that God has given to us, and he expects us to be good stewards of those relationships. He expects us to take care of them as if they were precious commodities. And because of that, we need to learn how to deal with them. Some of them aren't always good. Yeah, some of them are difficult relationships. And I say not good. Some of them, some of them aren't always easy. They're difficult relationships sometimes. Even though they may be the closest ones to us, they are difficult um, to uh, manage. Last week, we talked about husband and wife relationships. We talked about why God created marriage and what he has in terms of expectations for us. This week, we're going to go to a different level and talk about another aspect of relationships, and it's, in fact, entitled simply divorce. All right. Yeah. Just we're going to talk about divorce. Not something we talk about in church often. We shy away from these top, these topics, even though, and I started thinking about it as I've been preparing for this, even though it touches a number of people in the congregation. It's simply not something we discuss. And I don't want those people who have been affected by divorce living in shadows, living under the shadow of a marriage that did not work out. So I want to talk about it and bring some light to it and how we get here. And more importantly, I want to talk about how the Bible looks at this topic. Because most of the time we find ourselves shrouded in what folks say and what the community says. But let's go to the Bible and talk about how the Bible deals with this very difficult topic. And our foundational scripture takes us back to where we were last week when we were preaching, back to Matthew, all right, chapter 19. If you'll allow me to lift three verses there to start us out, I'll be touching on a few of, a few others in the message, but 19, 1, two, and three are the verses. Nineteen, one, two, and three are the verses that we're going to pick up. And verse one reads as follows. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse three, Action verse says, and uh, some pharaohs came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? All right. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Let me give you some setup on this and where we... Where that we were, first of all, there's a tension in the church, all right, on topics such as this. Because it's our responsibility as ministers of the gospel to teach God's standards when it comes to living. And it's also our responsibility to exhibit, to show, and teach compassion to people when standards aren't met, all right? So there's a, there's a tension there. As a pastor, one who loves people, this is not a sermon that you can step into easily because you know the pain that comes with topics such as this. And yet, and so there's no delight in teaching it. It's simply a responsibility to make sure we talk about it. You know anybody who's been involved in a divorce situation. You know the hurt and the pain associated with it. It's never something to be taken lightly. And so nobody's here today. I'm not here today to dredge up any pain or to put anyone in a place that's uncomfortable. I simply have the responsibility to teach and make sure we understand what the Bible says on this topic. And I think perhaps knowing that will bring some comfort. 
and understanding that. We also have a responsibility, as many preachers and pulpits say, to preach the full counsel of God. All right, not just the things that we like or feel good or make you feel okay. In fact, every sermon I preach ought to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, every one of them. Whether it's in your wheelhouse or you know somebody, there ought to be some tension there. And whether I am following that perspective or living in that way. And so when we preach the full counsel of God, it's not easy for a lot of reasons, but we've been told we've got to do it and we have to follow those directions. We have to preach in season and out of season. Yeah, when people like it and when people don't like it, we have to preach it. And so today we're going to look at divorce. Know this, at the time of the writing of the writ that we're using as our underlying scripture, Divorce was a very popular topic, and it was very commonplace in that community to discuss divorce, all right? Why? Because marriage was such a big part of any Jewish man's life. Every Jewish man was expected to get married. There was hardly any exception to that rule. If you were of marrying age and were a Jewish man, then it was part of your responsibility to get married. All right. In fact, at the time, the historians say that Jews may have had some of the highest standards that existed concerning marriage and what it meant. Meant the high standards doesn't mean everybody met those standards. That's why divorce was such a hot topic. A man was expected to marry. Why? Let me give you one reason. First of all, they were supposed to follow the positive command in Scripture that God gave. They call it a positive command to be fruitful and multiply. All right. And so because of that, Jews treated that as a positive command to each man to do that. Not only that. A man was said to have slain his posterity by not marrying. Slay your posterity. In other words, your line can't continue. And when you don't marry, you cut off your line. So you slay your posterity because of that. The only valid exception, the only real exception was if a man devoted himself, Beata, to the study of the Torah. In other words, you got to become a priest or a monk in order not to get married. Now, that's one side of the equation. Let me give you the other side. That's the woman's side. She had no rights. Man expected to marry. She had no rights. I want that to sink in because that creates so much tension because a man had all the rights. There was no way a woman could divorce a man under any circumstance. Not at all. But a a man could divorce his wife for anything. She put too much salt in my breath. She burned my breath. Write out a bill of divorce. Put it in her hand. That means get the step. Could divorce her for anything. You mess up a bunt cake. It's over. It's over. You won't mess up another one. Wasting my eggs. Maybe laughing will help us. There were no real standards that men seemed to follow if they woke up and simply didn't like her no more. They could divorce her. On the other hand, if she woke up and couldn't like him, didn't like him, she could do nothing legally 
to divorce him. Why are you telling us this, Reverend Bob? Because this is the backdrop I want you to understand. This is why these questions were coming up. Let me give you another perspective, because I told you it was popular at the time. This is the same group of men who came to Jesus in that third verse. And the Bible says, if you look at it now, there's a word in there that jumps out at it. It says they came testing him. In other words, they were up to something when they came to Jesus. Yeah, their intentions were not good. They were trying to trap Jesus in a conversation about marriage and what divorce was about. And they had him. They wanted him between a rock and a hard place. Why? Because this is the same community that at the same time was dealing with the issue of their top leader having marital issues. Yeah, yeah. Herod Antipas was the tetrarch or governor of that time, at that time. This same Herod and a, and a tetrarch, the way they ruled in, at that time in the country, the country was divided into four parts. Each part had a governor, and Herod was the governor that was in the region that was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had a leadership quandary because Herod had taken a woman named Herodias as his wife. You may know Herodias. Herodias was the woman who wanted John the Baptist killed. But the reason she wanted John the Baptist killed is because John the Baptist got on the nightly news and said something about her marriage to Herod. She, he said, according to God's standards, it was wrong because she married her brother-in-law. Yeah, she married her brother-in-law. That was wrong. She didn't like it, and she was upset. And so to satisfy her, Herod asked, what must I do to satisfy you, oh, my queen? And she said, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that's why John the Baptist was in jail. And ultimately killed and beheaded. All of it because of the issue of divorce and marriage. That's why we find ourselves here. So I know we hear about it today. I know we talk about it today. It seems like everybody's talking about divorce. It's always been an issue to talk about this. Now, putting that into context, the Pharisees are trying to trip him up because if Jesus says, that it's proper for a man to divorce his wife, then he gets trapped like John the Baptist was. And then they can have Jesus snatched up and put in jail too because that's their goal. They want Jesus to be in the same situation that John the Baptist is in. They're trying to get rid of him. Oh, 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 you know, there's some evil folk out there. And these folk belong to the church because Jesus was drawing people away from them and was impacting their economic survival, because he was messing with their pocketbook issues, they needed him to be gone. That was part of the, of the test. If Jesus says, no, it's not possible for a man to divorce his wife under any circumstances, he's going to jail. Because he would have just indicted Herod Antipas for what he did. Oh, I forgot to tell y'all, when Herod took Herodias as his wife, he was married to another woman. Oh, it was ragged. It was ragged. So here we are. So let me give you the two schools of thought that existed at that time, theologically, because we always have to try to interpret what God gives to us. We always have these folk who become experts in it. And there were two schools of thought at the time that this was going on. One was from Rabbi his last name was Hillel, Rabbi Hillel. And he had what was considered the more liberal view on how to deal with uh, marriage and divorce. On the issue of divorce and remarriage, I must add, uh, he basically said that there was a no-fault divorce. In other words, that a man could divorce his wife for anything, any reason. No fault. It was all on the man. If the husband didn't like how she wore her hair in public, 
he could divorce her. Uh, she wore it down, and, and he thought it should have been up. He could divorce her. If he saw her talking to another man in public, he could divorce her. All right? And then back again to burning up his food, of course. He could divorce her. But then there was another school of thought from Rabbi Shammai. Shammai. S-H-A-M-M-A-I. He was much more conservative in his approach. And he said, basically, divorce is not allowed. Except for a couple of circumstances. Those circumstances being the ones we're going to talk about for a little bit today. So here we have Hillel on one side, who basically says anything, you can get divorced or anything. And Shammai, much more conservative, saying it's very difficult to get a divorce. And there's only a couple of reasons why it's allowed. Who do you think they like? Who do you think was the most popular one? Yeah, of course, you know, pu pu public opinion flowed to Hillel. Most folk wanted to have the freedom to do what they wanted to do under any circumstances and not be counted, not be held accountable for those decisions and be able to move on uh, as they chose to. And that's where we find ourselves in this discussion. Which one is appropriate? The law as it exists right now, Andre, step into your lawyer role, creates in the common law that we've established it changed some years ago. We used to have to come in and plead a reason for divorce and come in and prove the reason for divorce. You have to actually come in and prove that, that, that this exists. If you say, I'm leaving because we have incompatibility of temperament, you got to come in and prove why that's the case. But most states, including Alabama, have moved to a standard that allows no-fault divorce. In other words, you can basically just say, we don't get along no more. We don't need to be divorced. Most divorces today are, as you can imagine, no-fault divorces because it's an easier standard. That's the common law. That's not God's law. Those are two different things, all right? The law, the common law establishes procedures for marriage and divorce, dissolution of those marriages, but so too does the Bible. And so the complication in this matter comes when you are a member of God's family as a believer, which standards govern? And I dare say to you both, both govern. You, But what I want to do is lift up what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, and then you got to deal with how you understand and are involved in that. Pharisees were focused on the conversation for a different reason, because Jesus, when he talked about the issue, he was focusing on marriage and why God created marriage, and how marriage works, and what it means to be married and stay married. That was the focus of his conversation. On the other hand, the Pharisees were talking about divorce, and how you get divorced, and why. I hope you understand the difference. It, it depends on what your focus is when it comes to how you deal with the issue. Uh, the Pharisees weren't concerned about the sanctity of marriage and the reasons for staying married. Jesus's response to them when they tried to trap him was simple. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he said, for this reason, we read this last week and talked about it. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Your focus in the question makes a difference in how you live. Let me see if I can make this really, really simple to you. The Pharisees then challenged him. And said, why then did Moses say that 
give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. They use the word command. Why did Moses command, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus tells them that he did not command anything. A certificate of divorce is not a command. It's permission. All right. It's not a command. It's permission. All right. Make it simple, Andre. Pharisees focused on the reasons for divorce. Jesus focused on reasons to stay married. This is Jesus's perspective. When a man and a woman get married, they're no longer Jim and Jane. All right. They are one being. They become one being. And he's saying it's impossible at that point to separate one being. And so divorce then becomes impractical. That's not how the Pharisees see it. And see, how you look at marriage determines how you deal with divorce. Now, we understand the practicality of folk not getting together and not getting along, but marriage in God's eyesight joins husband and wife as one new being, not two single beings. Got to follow me on this now, because if you don't understand that part of it, and the two shall become one, that's how it's being looked at. And so how do you separate one? When you separate one, it becomes half. That's the Bible way of looking at marriage. And that's why he used the term, let no one tear asunder. Because in order to separate one, you have to tear it. That's why it's hard in the marriage to separate because it's always going to cause pain. Because you're tearing one. That is, if the two... This is crucial if the two have ever truly become one. And that becomes the problem that you and I see right now. We know that though we came together, we were never truly one. Never truly one. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Pharisees, upon hearing this, said, but Moses said, give her a bill of divorce. In other words, Moses said, Father Moses gave us permission. Well, they say it gave us a command. They use a command to give her a bill of divorce. And Jesus corrects them. And he says that Moses did not command anything. All right, because Moses couldn't command anything. Moses gave permission. And the reason he said, cut them to the quick. He said, a reason he gave permission is because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, in other words, Moses simply facilitated a way for the marriages to be dissolved because men have hard hearts and are not forgiving. That was the purpose of that scripture. So when you hear people talking about it, Moses said it's okay for folk to get divorced. Moses did say that. But he said that because he understood the practical effect of marriage and the fact that if a, if a decree of divorce or a certificate of divorce was not issued, folks were less than forgiving. They would not forgive enough. Jesus' standard is this. When you have a marriage, you have to go through what you have to go through to stay married. Now, you and I know that that's not always practical because there are some things that are absolutely dangerous and and harmful. And we know, and I'm here to tell you today, I'm not one of them preachers that tell you you got to stay under any circumstance. I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm here to tell you there are some circumstances when I'm telling you you need to go and you need to go quickly. 
that, that's why I am. I understand the practicality that it's dangerous and that people get hurt, people get killed in situations like this. Do not stay in a marriage where you are being abused. Yeah, I'm standing right here telling you that. And I don't believe that is inconsistent with scripture because I believe that violence and inappropriate activities within a marriage we're going to talk about the two two specific ones break the marriage covenant and when you break the marriage covenant when you violate what you swore before God you would do the other person is no longer bound by that covenant and so it's okay at that point in my opinion to seek civil relief from the union because you already tore it up in front of God. That's my notion on what divorce is about. And so if you're sitting here and you have been subjected to abuse of whatever kind, sexual, physical, emotional, whatever, don't sit here and feel like you have to continue being victimized. Because you chose to dissolve what was already tore up. And no one in here should hold you accountable for dissolving that marriage under those circumstances. First of all, it ain't their business. But if they do make it their business, then they need to understand the total aspect of your relationship. Now, I'm not here to tell you that those who did not early on contemplate the full effect of marriage and the fact that two folk have to actually get along and blend their lives because they have too much of that going on, too much rushing in, too much ill-considered thought on what it's about. And then you get in there and you realize it's hard. Anybody but me know that on a good day, marriage is hard. I'm not talking about those who are marrying for convenience and for things other than appropriateness. And then they realize, I don't like this, and they get out. That's a whole different issue. I'm talking about somebody who came with the right intention, came with the right process, did everything they could, and the marriage itself was damaged. The covenant was damaged by the actions of another party in it. You don't have to stay there for that. You don't have to stay there. Now, this has implications two ways. You don't have to stay, and it doesn't prevent you from moving on. That's important because in that day and time, there would be a pall cast on the person who was married, which would thus prevent them from getting remarried. And I came to tell you that that's, that's just not why I'm God-designed marriage. And so from God's perspective, anything he gives us, he gives it to us and it's perfect when he gives it to us. He expects us to live up to the standard that he gave it to, to us. Now, everybody in uh, marriage isn't universally accepted around the world. This is a concept for those who love the Lord and primarily Christians believe that marriage is important. Don't you? It's not the same everywhere, y'all. There are some polygamist countries there are some polygamous communities. They believe that a man can have multiple wives. There are probably some areas where women have multiple hugs. I don't know. But everybody doesn't agree and follow the same thing. I mean, look, whatever floats your boat in that area. Yeah, if she got four husbands, that's her business. But we don't look the same as a woman having multiple husbands as we do with a man having multiple wives. You know, that's some spaces in America. That's always on the news about me and how y'all watch it on TV. I even heard somebody say, we sister wives. I said, you foolish. We sister wives. What? What? Not, not in this space. We sister wives, but we love the Lord. No. No, no, you reading that wrong. Go back <laughs> and read it with the lights on. This time, all right? That, that this don't work the same way. I told you last week, God designed marriage to be exclusive, permanent, and intimate. That was his standard. 
divorce was not and is not a part of God's design. It was not and it is not a part of his design. In fact, in Malachi, in Malachi, he wrote, the Lord hates divorce. He wrote it. But let me put some underline on that. The, the Lord hates divorced. The Lord hates divorce, not divorced people. All right, that's important. He hates the concept of divorce because he knows what divorce ultimately does to the fabric of his core creation. His core creation is the family. And he knows what divorce can do, how it can impact that. But God loves us. And he knows we are imperfect people. And he knows circumstances come about. And we fall short of his expectation. And because of that, God in his permissiveness has allowed opportunities for getting things better. So is divorce ever allowed? The answer is yes. Don't leave here without understanding the core answer. Divorce is allowed. All right. Two reasons specifically where divorce is allowed. And we know that divorce is allowed. We know that God allows circumstances wherein divorce is permitted. And we know that he allows remarriage. How do I know it? All you have to do is go study the, uh, the story of Jose and Gomer. Yeah, let's just study it. It's a metaphor for the church and God. Yeah, the preacher marries the prostitute. The preacher not only marries the prostitute, the preacher goes and marries the prostitute who then continues prostituting. God is the preacher. Israel is the prostitute. That's what it's about. And the Lord is so merciful and so loving that the Lord will go and buy the prostitute from the men that bought her. That's how much God loved us. God is saying, I bought Israel back time and time again, and I continue to love her through it all. So adultery in and of itself is not a grounds that commands divorce. God says that. You can work through that. If that's what the issue is and you are so inclined, you can forgive whatever you want to forgive if you're able to do that. I know in this modern construct, we say, no, nah, but ain't, I'm not asking for anybody to look no different, look straight ahead. Plenty of folk in here have forgiven adultery. All right. And plenty of folk in here have been forgiven. Adultery and the marriage still continues. That's a personal choice. That's something you have to work through and deal with. All right, but it's no command that because that happens, you have to get a divorce. No, that's not the case. But abuse is different. That's a different issue. All right. And here it is. Matthew 19 and 9 says that, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The exception that Matthew was instructed to write. This is known as the acceptive clause. The acceptive clause in scripture. The acceptive clause. Matthew 5, 31, 32 says, uh, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The acceptive clause would put immorality, which today translates as adultery, at the forefront. I came to tell you that even that is not a command that is permitted. Sexual immorality and adultery is a violation of the marital covenant. It is. It's a violation of the marital covenant. Adultery is a breach of trust. 
It's a violation of the marital covenant, the violation of all the vows that were taken and promises made, but it does not demand a divorce. But it does not prohibit it either. Because sometimes in that space, trust is completely shattered. And except the Lord rebuild it, there ain't no way to rebuild that trust. Okay, that's a personal decision. So the two grounds I'm giving you for biblical divorce are sexual immorality and adultery. There's a passage of scripture that people often refer to, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to read it right now because it's so long. But I will tell you that that passage of scripture does not speak to adultery. It does not. It is often misquoted and misunderstood if you go read it. All right. There was a provision made for adultery. If a woman, well, let's let's be frank here. If a woman committed adultery he, under the Old Testament, the remedy was sure. Stone her. She's going to be killed. So you didn't need a second remedy for adultery if a woman committed adultery. And since a woman didn't have any power, if a man committed adultery, then the woman couldn't do anything about it. She couldn't file for a bill of divorce. That, that just wasn't permitted. But if she did it, he could kill her. Yeah, in the Old Testament, if she did, he didn't have to bother with a divorce. Come on now. And then in the New Testament, y'all know what the remedy was. Come on, y'all know we're about to end of the season where, where Joseph found out that Mary was expecting a baby when they were together. And he said he could have put her away, but he decided to do so quietly. He had a public remedy he could have put her to with the expectation that she had committed adultery. Now, this is at the very core of what we believe. But Joseph, in his grace, decided to put her away privately until he came to a greater understanding of what it was about. Through the influence and instruction of the Holy Ghost. That's how he found out. All right? That law was still in effect from the Old Testament until when Mary was pregnant with Jesus. He was merciful. There's nothing in the passage that requires or speaks to divorce in that Deuteronomy passage. The concern is not divorce in that space. Really, if you want to be honest, it's one of the earliest passages that actually takes care of a woman and prevents her from being abused if her first husband, who divorced her, he divorced her, she marries again, and her second husband either divorces her or dies, the law prevents the first husband from marrying her again. That's what it's about, and it's to protect her. It's to protect her. So it ain't got nothing to do with divorce, not in that respect. It's to protect her, but they always turn to that. What are other reasons you can divorce under the circumstances of sexual immorality or adultery? Well, if the person won't repent of the sin. If the person is unwilling to return to the marriage. Or if there's unforgiveness in forgiving the guilty or offending party. These are grounds where divorce is permissible. My opinion, and in the Bible's opinion, my opinion doesn't matter as much as the Bible does. Can I tell you why it's important that you read these scriptures? These scriptures, because Jesus points to something when he answers the questions to the Pharisees. I'm going to say this and I'm going to give you this last point. I'm out of here. Jesus asked them, have you not read the whole Bible? This is what he asked them when they questioned him. He challenges them with another question. He puts it back on them. Have you not read the whole Bible? They point to a few scripture, but they don't even mention the rest of the Bible that they didn't pay attention to, which is why Jesus said, let me school you now. Let me take you back. You mentioned Moses. Let me take you back before Moses existed, when God created marriage. This is what God wanted. I understand Moses came in and shored it up a little bit, but this is what God wanted. And Moses put a little footnote on what God wanted, but know what God wants. But the problem he pointed to is something that I need to say today, and you can write this down or not if you want. 
The reason we have so many problems is because we have so much Bible illiteracy. All right, we are biblically illiterate. That doesn't mean you don't know how to read and write. It means you won't go read. You won't go read and understand the Bible because it's in there. If you study it and learn it, then you'll understand. Maybe you need somebody to help you explain it. But biblical illiteracy is the problem we have with understanding and and, and being faithful to what God wants. How can you how can you run around saying I do what the Lord wants me to do if you don't know what he wants you to do? If you don't read what he wants you to do, if you're going into a marriage, figure out what God's plan is for marriage. That's important. And even under those circumstances, you'll have difficulties because you still got to live with folk each day. John MacArthur gives this in his uh, discussion of, of adultery. He says that one who has been betrayed by the infidelity of another is free to remarry. He said, God's grace to the guilty party by not having them put to death should not serve as a punishment to the innocent party. So in other words, if God is going to be gracious enough not to kill the offending party or to require that, then why should the act of divorce act as an albatross around the neck of the person who didn't do anything wrong? And so if you are permitted to divorce, you're absolutely permitted to remarry without any stigma associated with it. And the last point is another reason why divorce is permissible is desertion. Desertion. Now, Paul writes about it in Corinthians. It says desertion by an unbelieving spouse. An unbelieving spouse. And Paul goes through this long conversation about how a believing spouse should not leave an unbelieving spouse just because they won't come into the faith. And his theory is that by you living righteously and how the Lord instructed you to live, that serves as a continuing model for the unbelieving spouse who one day will understand the necessity of serving the Lord and convert. But if that unbelieving spouse never comes into the faith, or if he or she leaves, then scripture says clear under those circumstances that divorce is permissible. That's hard. But that's what the scripture says. If you are free to divorce under those circumstances and to remarry. And I'm going to close with this. And I don't know if you've seen it this way. The reason why God is not foreign to divorce is because he understands it. God understands divorce. All right. You know why? He understands it because God has been divorced. He has. I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. Jeremiah wrote it. He said, God has given Israel a certificate of divorce because Israel was continuously unfaithful to him. And because Israel, whom he loved, whom he called his people, who he rescued and nurtured and provided for and gave their very being, who he made into something when they were nothing. This same Israel who God rescued time and time again, who God took and gave the very perfect portion of his creation to. He said, I'm going to give you, when I marry you, you as a man come tell a woman, when I marry you, girl, I'm going to give you the promised land. Well, God did give Israel the promised land. And he gave it the promised land without any condition except that they loved him back. And time and time and time and time again, Israel refused to love God back. So Jeremiah said God gave Israel a deal of divorce. But he wouldn't let it stay because he so loved it. So God understands divorce. Don't stand defeated in divorce. Don't stand forever with your head cast down in divorce because the same God who gave Israel a certificate of divorce also gave Israel a way back. 
That's how good he is, because ultimately God is love. And this God who realizes that even folk in their greatest intentions mess up. And then they mess up the mess up. And then they mess up the mess up that was straightened out and they mess that up again. God knows that and he loves us enough to keep giving us opportunities. He resolved the divorce and remarried, if you will, those who would believe in the gift of eternal life that he sent. And that's why you ought to be grateful for Jesus, because Jesus puts it all back together again. A tore-up relationship between God and his people was straightened up when Jesus came. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I can. It's just love. It's that crazy kind of love that you don't understand. The love that can put together that was that which was torn up. It's that kind of love. Jesus accepts us back through a relationship in Jesus Christ. My question to you today is, have you accepted Jesus and his atoning work, his sacrificial work, his love work? Have you accepted it? Because Jesus puts us back together with Jesus. I mean, with, with God. Watch this. God is not forever mad with us. He loves us. Do you love him? Do you love him? So now, if you've been in that situation, first, forgive yourself. Because God will forgive you. Don't forever be upset behind those circumstances. Accept the gift of newness that comes in life from God. He gave us Jesus. Do you know him? As our elders come today and celebrate the victory of relationship, welcome. And I invite you, if you've never accepted a relationship with Jesus Christ, today's the day. You never expressed that relationship through baptism, today's the day. Doors of our church are open. Come on, be a part of our family.